Father, who said in thy word, if any man desires wisdom, let him ask of God. And we are together today thinking about big and practical issues that we need wisdom for, Lord. Wisdom to take thy word and make it real in the circumstances of our daily life. And over this next few minutes, as we address questions, we pray for wisdom, Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, the wis- of wisdom. So we put ourselves before thee, conscious of our own weakness and failure and ability to make mistakes, but resting completely in the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of thy word. So bless us as we spend a little time together in the Lord's name. Amen. Now, um, we have a good number of questions, so I'm guessing that we won't be able to answer them in any great depth, but we'll try them as best we can. Let me just say a couple of things before we go into the questions. When I do question and answer sessions, I like people to know that truth doesn't live and die with me, okay? So when we answer questions, we're just trying to give you as much help as we can. We are fallible. We could make mistakes. We wouldn't deliberately tell you something that we don't believe to be true, but you have to take everything you hear and go back to the Word of God. You don't quote preachers or anything like that. So, let's begin with this one. It's about relationships. How should a believer handle a toxic relationship with another believer? Is there a Christ-like way to protect yourself from getting hurt? Or should the relationship be maintained despite being hurt on a regular basis? Should a Christian cut ties with another? By toxic, I mean only one party benefits from the relationship, or in other words, one person is always giving while the other one takes. So, Mr. Caleb, why don't we start with you? So the, the verse that came to my mind, could I hold the question while I attempt oh, to answer or part of it at least. Uh, the, que- or the verse that came to my mind while thinking about this question that, that you've asked, which is a great question, and I think a more frequent issue, um, is it does get to a point where um, you have that verse, uh, from such withdraw thyself. And if I was just about to look it up, uh, but didn't get all the way there, is it Timothy, possibly? But there, there, are, there are times when... We're in the presence of people or we make acquaintance with people who are troublemakers and that they're, they're so actively involved or stuck in that state of relating that we are actually as believers encouraged just to withdraw ourselves. And I think the more modern kind of interpretation of that, which is the same idea, is the idea of setting boundaries. So my experience has been that there... Uh, there comes a point where so much energy is going towards this relationship and managing it that it's taking away from where you really need to be with your wife, with your family, that kind of thing. And so it is okay to say enough is enough or to set limits on how much time you spend there. As far as getting hurt, uh, we have in Matthew chapter 18 that we discussed last year, forgiveness and reconciliation. So there is the need to forgive and forgive and forgive, and you will need to forgive this person. But again, just a reminder that when we clearly understand the teaching of forgiveness in the Bible, it doesn't always require reconciliation, which is the restoration of a relationship. So we can do the work of forgiveness so that we're not carrying bitterness, anger, or even hatred towards a person like this. 
But it does not automatically follow that you have to reconcile and you have to go get hit by them again and again and again. Uh, so you can choose to, to stop there. More could be said, but I'll leave that to our brothers. I think that's a great answer. The only thing, can I see that again? The only comment I would make in addition, I totally agree with the, the idea on boundaries, is uh, healthy relationships have balance. Right? So, I mean, we want to be that with other people. Am I the kind of person that is contributing to relationships? Or when I'm in a relationship, is it always about uh, me? So, um, you know, think about that when it comes to relationships. And the other thought that I had, should a Christian cut ties with one another? So, I mean, there's a lot not said in uh, in this question. There's always a, a backstory, But... If this is a toxic relationship that it would be helpful for you to set a boundary to withdraw, uh, just remember that the forgiveness theme means that, you know, over time you'll be able to let go of that relationship. You don't need to do your part to get your side of the story out to the maximum number of people and to damage other people in the process. So there's a forgiveness thing that allows us to let go of these relationships and just let them flow down the river. Um, sometimes, though, our vindictive selves uh, comes into play, and if we don't engage in the forgiveness process, and we can mask it in all kinds of subtle ways, but but to forgive means to really to really find a way over time of letting go. Does that make sense? Excellent, but I was only thinking about partly forgiveness. The Lord said, or Peter said, Lord, how many times have I got to forgive somebody? Seven times. And the Lord said, no, 70 times seven. So for me, it depends what's meant by a toxic relationship, of course, doesn't it? It depends what's meant by that toxic relationship. But it says somebody's always giving where the other one takes. Folks, Christ always gave, didn't he? He always gave. And he gave without expecting anything in return. And the classic kind of chapter about that is Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? Let this mind be in you, who was, which was also in Christ Jesus, um, who became the form of a servant, took on the like fashion as a man, became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Who, and then Peter says, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. I think the essence of dealing with a, Christ, a, a toxic relationship is trying to be Christ-like in it, isn't it really? And reacting the way the Lord would react. And that's not natural. That is definitely not natural. Certainly for me, coming from Scotland, we're very fiery and combative by nature. And we quite like, we quite like toxic relationships. It's a kind of national pastime, toxic relationships, if you go to Scotland. Um, so that would be the only thing I would say. And the withdrawal situation, I think there are times when you have to withdraw both for your own good and even for the good of the other person because they're, they're just feeding their, their bitterness by pouring it out in you. So you, you withdraw yourself as the target of that. But that... that chapter you were talking about, Kiel, was First Timothy 6, and it was talking about withdrawing from false teachers, oh, really, rather yeah. than withdrawing from, from relationships. Okay, so...
Here's one along the similar, in a similar vein. How do you deal with Christians that are mostly angry without losing your joy or your sanity? Mm. How about David and Saul? You can point it at me if you want to. <laughs> but um, David, so David and Saul, I mean, there came a point where it was not safe for David to be around Saul anymore, and he left. So that's, an, that's one example that we have in Scripture where someone ended up cutting that off. Uh, it, so it really depends on how, on how angry the person is. Um, if you feel safe to confront them, you may decide to do so on the basis of uh, also Matthew 18. Uh, if the brother's sinning against you, go and talk to, talk to him, you and him alone, and begin there. That's one option. Uh, but if it's not safe to do that, then um, safety is more important than than continuing to stay in the situation, I would say. Not, we don't have a lot of backstory on the context here, but... If it's safe, and the person is angry with you for uh, a legitimate reason, I mean, practice an apology. <laughs> you know, uh, and again, I want to say that cautiously. There's a lot of ifs there, because we don't know the backstory here. But if it is safe, and if you have done something that you can apologize for, you may be able to dilute the anger by, by a simple apology. Maybe written. Depends on the nature of the relationship, but there's a lot of details that are not made clear. Yeah, and, and I read into the question that the anger was unjustified, unjust anger rather than justified anger. And, you know, if, again, I go back to this it's the reaction that matters, isn't it? Isn't it how you react to somebody that's angry with you? And I would only say that the Lord reacted to people who were angry with him, didn't he? He reacted in the most gentle and forgiving way. And often a gentle spirit, is it a soft answer, turns away wrath? Is that what the proverb says? That you don't return, you don't return fire. In a Christ-like way, you don't return fire. Okay, here's a little change of a you want to see something else, Stephen? I can't find uh, the verse, but it's in one of the Psalms. The person that uh, aids gossip by listening to it. Um, I'll have to find it some other time. But, you know, some people just are angry about everything. And uh, sometimes by listening to that, you know, where there's no, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> where there's no wood, the fire goes out. So sometimes uh, folks like that just don't give them, don't give them the space to burn their fire on that. So the whole issue, if anger is going into gossip, how, how do you know this person is angry? What's involved? Uh, if if gossip is is part of that, um, in a gossip transaction, there are two people that are involved. Spurgeon said this: the devil is in the tongue of the gossip, and the uh, devil is in the ear of the person who listens. So, you may not be able to stop the gossip, but you can stop listening. Just stop feeding uh, the angry, angry talk, or by listening to it. Okay, a change of subject. I'll take this one. <coughs> Do you know any good resources about science and the Bible or apologetics? The answer is yes, I do. Thank you. <laughs> There are. You should have been a comedian. 
There are multitudes of resources um, that are available for the Bible and apologetics. Um, if you're thinking about creation and evolution, you can think about um, Answers in Genesis, for example. Um, there's other ones, James White. I don't know if anybody deals with James White. We have a brother in our assembly called Jonathan McClatchy who's been very involved in apologetics. If you Google him, you'll find a vast array of resources for apologetics and science and things like that. So, there, I mean, you just need to put into Google... Oh, sorry. Um, you just need to put in Christian apologetics and you'll come up with good and bad resources. Uh, Rabbi Zacharias is a good option. A lot of... His content is excellent. He's sound in the gospel as well. Uh, there's one, and my brain is... That's uh, for apologetics, by the way. Yeah, I, I love Ravi Zacharias. There's another one. Uh, and he's Canadian. STR, what's that one? STR.org. Oh, my brain is not working. We'll just get on our phones and look this up. I'm trying to find... I'm on his mailing list. you think I'd know. I can't find it. Who knows it? Does anybody know? STR, Stand to Reason. Yeah, who runs it? The guy's name. He's a, do you know? No, that's another name. Hugh Ross is an old earth guy, if you're into that. Stand to Reason, it's a... Maybe we'll go to the next question and come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could I just say a word about apologetics? I think we live in a generation when we think apologetics is the be-all and end-all of Christian witness. Apologetics is one of the tools in the toolbox that we have for evangelism. It's only one of the tools that we have. And to be honest, we haven't spent a long time on the streets, witnessing to people in the streets, open-air preaching. Sometimes we are more hung up in apologetics than the unbelievers are that we equip ourselves to answer questions that actually most unbelievers are not asking. You'll come across the occasional one that has a genuine uh, difficulty with some area of biblical manuscripts, evolution, um, Islam, or something like that. But most times, the the things that we think are important to people are not really important to people. So I would say when it comes to apologetics, sure, give yourself some resources and some time, but don't overindulge in them, to be quite honest with you. You found it? I found it. It's uh, William Lane Craig. Hmm. He's one of the the foremost uh, apologists. Reasons to believe? William Lane Craig. Thanks. There are different kinds of apologetics. There's presuppositional apologetics and evidential apologetics. Are you aware of that? Yeah, yeah. He's he's an evidentialist. So, okay, let's move on to another one. With the new passing of legislation about marijuana, how should Christians approach this type of conversation? Is there scripture we can go to for guidance? How does this differ from the passages about wine? I can only say that legalisation of marijuana in Canada caused me a major problem because everybody in the UK wanted a seat on the plane on (laughs) Wednesday. I did have a benefit. I got bumped up to business class, so I was very happy for that. Canadian. Yeah. Um, I think this is an assembly... uh, It's on my mind for my home assembly, and this has only just fizzed on me the last few days, that we 
we need to have a discussion even on the oversight and as far as extending that information to the assembly because there's been the assumption in the past that this was illegal, so it would be obvious that uh, it would be prohibited. But now that that, that may not, that won't be obvious. Uh, 13, 12, 14-year-olds maybe in there, they'll grow up in a world with marijuana and they won't, uh, they won't see it the same way as those of us who grew up where it was illegal. And so if, uh, for overseers, if this is something that you would consider to fall under the topic of drunkenness, uh, if there's a sustained use of marijuana for non-medicinal purposes, then it's probably wise to advise your assembly members that they will be held accountable for the um, for, for restraint from the use of marijuana. Uh, consider the uh, what was taught a little bit today about idolatry and taking things to your phone. You can take all of those nasty feelings to weed as well, and you'll feel even better than when you take them to your phone. And so we have to really challenge ourselves as Christians again on the subject of idolatry and what the purpose that the marijuana uh, serves in in my use of it. Um, I personally cannot comment on the medical side of that. I don't know where the science or the research stands on that. I'm, so I'm, I'm speaking much more on the recreational use of it. So I would overall I'd raise some very large question marks. Just the, the scripture on all addictions, um, you know, first, in addition to what's been said, 1 Corinthians 6.12, they were saying under the banner of grace, everything is permissible for me. Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. Then he goes on, everything is permissible for me. That was their statement. Paul comments, but I will not be mastered by anything. And so really anything that controls us versus uh, the reverse, we need to, we need to bring to the Lord as, as Caleb has said. But it's going to become more and more common, particularly in our uh, evangelism to the world. Um, you know, there's, this is it's pretty, pretty common. And uh, I think we need to bring people to the Lord, you know, uh, sort of targeting certain sins uh, for special prosecution in the gospel is sort of counterproductive because you'll choose the ones that you don't like and you'll pass on the ones that you are your sacred sins, right? And God is against all sin, whether it's your special one or, or not. And we just need to, we just need to, God is against sin, whatever that means to you. And, and seek to win people to the Lord. The gospel brings people to the Lord. My background before I was in the work of the Lord was pharmacology, drugs and their action. When it comes to medical use of marijuana, marijuana is only one of many, many substances that are addictive but have medical benefits. So morphine, for example, is very, very addictive. It's heroin. Cocaine is used for anesthesia. So um, I think probably the question is more to do with recreational use of the drug rather than, um, than medical use of the drug. So let, let me say something about recreational use of drugs. The Bible speaks, gives guidance and things in a variety of different ways. One is by precept. In other words, the Bible clearly addresses issues with do's or don'ts, right? Okay, you don't murder. So if the government legalise murder, right, the fact that it's legal does not change what the Bible says about it. Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. Very clear. And murder is murder, irrespective of, of the age of the individual, very young or very old. The life is given by God. So, so there's... There's Bible verses you can go to about things to do. 
There's no Bible verse about tobacco. There's no Bible verse about weed. There's no Bible verse about hymn books. So we have to look into our Bible not for precepts, in other words, do's and don'ts. We have to take principles that are taught in the Word of God and then make the principle apply to the individual situation. So you take, so what would you take in relation to tobacco and marijuana? Okay? You would think, okay, is it good for you? Is it bad for you? You think to yourself, I'm not talking medicinally, I'm talking about recreational. Is it a good thing for you to take tobacco and marijuana or is it not a good thing? Well, it's clear it's not a good thing, is it? When it comes to tobacco, it's just a, it's, you can't have a verse that says smoking tobacco is a sin. Smoking tobacco is not a sin, it's just stupid. Okay? And stupidity is obviously outlawed in the word of God because we've got to have a reasonable, reasonable mind. Marijuana is very harmful to the body, particularly in relation to your brain. Psychosis, um, I deal a lot with people who are involved in drug addiction and marijuana is usually the drug, the entrance drug, they call it a gateway drug. So it, pre- it has dangers and all sorts. Our body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's a principle, isn't it? So we've, we're supposed to look after our body, maintain our body in a way that we can glorify God. You're not your own, you're bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body. And in your spirit. So our bodies are not, just, we can, can't do anywhere our bodies. So gluttony, for example. Bible speaks about gluttony as a sin, mm-hmm. eh? So marijuana is not good for you physically or mentally. So the principle is if you want to maintain yourself in a condition to glorify God, mm-hmm. avoid it. The fact that it's legal does not mean that it's right. And because Canada have legalised it and the UK will eventually legalise it, does not mean that it's right. And as a Christian, we should be saying, okay, does any practice help me to glorify God? If I use this, if I drink this, if I smoke this, is that going to harm me or help me to glorify God? The answer's easy then, isn't it? So you take that principle and use that to interpret that. I'm just going to talk for a minute about wine. Wine. Drunkenness is a sin. Okay? It's clear from the Bible. You got your Bible? It's wrong to get drunk. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5. So a Christian getting drunk is sinful. Okay? Now, does that mean a Christian shouldn't touch alcohol? Is there a verse in the Bible that says Christians should never drink alcohol? If there was, I would just read it to you and say, there you are, proved it. Having said that, folks, can I say to you, I think you can make a very good biblical case from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's a very good, listen to me what I'm saying now. I'm not saying there's a verse in the Bible that says you shouldn't touch alcohol. I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying that you can make a very good biblical case that for the Christian, total abstinence is the best course of action. Amen. Okay? So I'm not saying there's a Bible verse that says Christians don't touch alcohol. But I'm saying this. If you put the whole of the Bible together, 
it's clear from the Bible that alcohol is a very dangerous subject, substance for those that want to live a godly life. And those who were called to live as priests and do special things for God like Nazarites, do you know what they had to do? They had to abstain from alcohol because alcohol was an obstacle to them fulfilling their full potential for God. So look at your Bible, trace the instances of the use of alcohol. It's almost always associated with sin in its wake. And usually the sin that follows in its wake is immorality. That's why the oil for the machinery of adultery is alcohol. Mm-hmm. It is. Alcohol oils the, the, the machinery of immorality, doesn't it? That's why you're asked to have a romantic evening with champagne. So I think, when it comes to wine, the best and wisest course of action for a Christian, according to the Bible, is to abstain totally from alcohol. So you're hearing what I'm saying, aren't you? You're not saying Jim McMaster says there's a verse for it because he doesn't, but I'm saying the Bible teaches that it's better to abstain if you want to live a godly life. It's better to be safe than sorry. Okay? It really, really is. And I'm, I feel passionately about that. I think also you can make a good economic case for abstaining from alcohol. And you can make a good social case for abstaining from alcohol. And you can make a good medical case for abstaining from alcohol. And you said, but listen, Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Listen, if you have a bad stomach, go to the pharmacy. Don't go to the bar. Timothy had no option to get Gaviscon or Pepsi or Bismol or whatever like that. It was medicinal. Okay. That's my hobby horse. I'm finished with that one. Stephen. Just one other point on that. Uh, stumbling. If you are going to have a ministry... To people with addictions, which I hope you uh, want to. I mean, there's a lot of people in society with addictions. If you're going to have a ministry in your church to those people, Mm -hmm. you can't be waving it in front of them all the time as well. So just consider that. Lots of alcohol addiction. And we're called to not be people that stumble. Again, that's a principle, not a law. It's a principle. And if you... I could take you to places with me and I would give you one night to see what alcohol does to people. And you would say to yourself, I do not want to put one penny in the pocket of people that are doing this to other people because they know exactly what they're doing. Alcohol producers know exactly what they're doing. They're not ignorant of it. Okay, Stephen, this one's for you. Stephen mentioned doing something, living our Christian lives out of duty and not out of love. Is there a place for duty? When you're tired, exhausted, and sad, how do you move from service out of duty, out of duty, to service out of love? I think this is a great question. Um, I think when you're tired, exhausted, I think uh, Jim taught us earlier today, you need a break. Right? You need to practice the principle of Sabbath. Not the law of Sabbath, we're not under the law, but the principle of taking rest, one-seventh of your time to sort of re-energize. And it strikes me that that might be the biggest thing in this question. You'll never be able to move out of duty service to love service while you're in a tired, exhausted, uh, and sad space. But I think um, beyond that, once you've had your, your rest, I think uh, reading the scriptures devotionally, reading the scriptures to see the Lord, 
reading books that are devotional, that draw your heart to the Lord. I think that's one way to, to move from duty service to, to, to love service. And it's not going to be a snap, miraculous thing. It's a gradual uh, transformation. So for me, it started with the uh, the works, reading the works of A.W. Tozer, The Attributes of God. It's just incredible uh, read of those books. And it just gave me another view of God and his character, his grace, his mercy, his righteousness. So I would say take a, a reading plan that uh, sort of moves you in that direction. Is there no place for duty? Well, I mean, we are called to obedience, but I just, I'm, without knowing the backstory here, I just wonder if this can be a, a Trojan horse. It depends on your personality type. I am a very driven sort of person, so this is my self-disclosure, this is my uh, area of weakness. If I wanted to do the duty thing, I could do it really well. And so, yeah, there is a place for, for obedience and, and being careful and living a disciplined life. Tim, Timothy, God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of love, discipline. So we are called to discipline in our life. But sometimes we can sneak stuff in underneath that banner. And it's really easy for us to be like the Ephesian church. We leave our first love and the passion and the feelings we held for Christ earlier. They, they sort of, they, they solidify and they just become they become stony, and we need to supple it up. We need to warm it up with uh, just thoughts of Christ. Could we uh, counter the, the the possibility of um, a little bit of snowflake generation effect coming in? Uh, what about Second uh, Timothy two verse three? You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So I agree fully. And but can we say alongside that there are times in life where we endure hardship? It, it doesn't mean that um, we always will find and can have access to the easy road. There are times that we have to endure, too. Is that fair to say, Stephen? It's okay. So. Yeah. Build a muscle. Got to build a muscle with hard work. Yeah. yeah. James one. Yeah. 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 Patience, yeah. endurance, yeah. 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 perseverance. Yeah. 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 I think there are times when. Good habits get you through tough times. Yeah. You know, Bible reading, for example. Anybody that tells you that every time they pick up their Bible and they read it, the light shines from heaven and their heart sets on fire and things like that is telling you lies, Mm -hmm. right? But having a good habit of reading your Bible (coughs) takes you through tough times. So instilling good Christian discipline and habits in your life is really, really important. And sometimes you just have to push through the tough times, don't you? And it's not, and you're pushing through not because you feel as though you're trying to gain brownie points, but you're pushing through because you love the Lord. That's why you're pushing through. Because you know that it pleases the Lord and you want to please the Lord, so you push through the tough times. Okay, let's try this one. We've got to put the pedal down here, bro. We've got to put the pedal down. Okay, we talked about how to recover from being a spiritual casualty. Can you offer some tips to avoid becoming a casualty? Yes. There's a word in the New Testament that will help you a lot, and it's the word flee. Flee. Whenever you see a danger, and often you become a spiritual casualty because the dangers are are there, you avoid them. You get out of there as quickly as possible. So I I just looked up when I was thinking about flee idolatry. Uh Caleb was talking about today flee fornication Uh so if you're in a position where 
immorality is that a danger do you know what you do you don't say I'm going to get through this you just get out of there as quickly as possible Joseph Genesis 32 very often the best way to avoid a spiritual becoming a spiritual casualty is get out of the dangerous situations Mm. withdraw from what's causing the the potential to make you a dangerous uh, causing the, the danger for you so if you go on an aircraft and they tell you about the emergency exits they'll always say this it may be your nearest exit is behind you, right? When it comes to sin and becoming a casualty, your nearest exit is always behind you. You just run away, don't you? So in a lot of cases, just running away is the way to avoid it. And Paul says to Timothy, flee these things, and then he says, follow after righteousness. So what Caleb's saying today about Philippians 4, setting your mind on good things is one way. And also I think balancing that with Luke 17 and 1, then he said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. We will all experience spiritual casualty as part of our walk, regrettably. It's part of living in this broken world. So let's have a realistic expectation too. And then that means, what do you need when you get injured? Most, you need healing. But it more, more so even than just healing, you need companionship. You need someone to walk through that with you, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So if it drives us to him then it's re- it becomes a redemptive experience. Okay. Just an active devotional life. For, for me, getting through hard times, uh, similar to what you said, just an active devotional life. I mean, it's not the silver bullet, but it's a good habit just to keep me close to the Lord. Now, we worried we weren't going to have enough questions. Now we're worried that we've got too many. Here's a question, a very important question. I noticed some cuts on my friend's wrist when her bracelets moved. She saved and confided in me that she used to have thoughts of self-harm, but she never mentioned she'd actually hurt herself. I haven't, I haven't brought it up that I saw her cuts because I didn't know how she would react. Is there anything I can do to help her? Mm. Do you want to talk about self-harm? Sorry? Do you want to talk about self-harm? Sure. Go ahead. Uh, so... Uh, the reason why people self-harm is because... Uh, this may be an over, at the risk of oversimplifying, but the reason why people self-harm is because the expression of physical pain gives voice to the internal pain that they carry. And not only that, but the brain gets behind it with um, putting out a painkiller in the brain in response to the physical pain, which helps numb the emotional pain that they're feeling as well. And so that's, that's why it can become a continued behavior. It's not, obviously it's not the best way to respond to pain. Uh, but it just may be sometimes that the cutting is a cry for help. So, the fact that you had a chance to see that and that you're a friend of this person, that's uh, all you need to make a gentle inquiry and just see if uh, she may be open to talking about that issue with you and then to begin to pursue some help and healing for the deeper wounds that are invisible. For the last more than 20 years, almost every day, I've dealt with people that are involved in self-harm. It's never simple. Never simple. As Caleb says, there's a a physiological mechanism that when some people cut themselves, enkephalins and endorphins are released that not only numb the pain, but actually induce a sense of euphoria alongside Mm -hmm. the self-harm. So sometimes people get pleasure in Mm self-harm. I know that seems a strange thing, but that can sometimes happen. 
Some people do it as a cry for help. Mm-hmm. They're just saying, look, I'm so pained inside that I just want to show you how bad I'm feeling so that you'll help me. Mm-hmm. Some people do that. And some people do it to punish themselves. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've been abused and they've been told by their abuse that they are there to blame. And so they damage themselves as a means of punishing themselves for what has been inflicted on them in the past. So self-harm is never simple. Never simple. And it's never one reason for it. It's often overlapping reasons for it. I haven't done any studies on it, but when I find somebody self-harms, I always ask them a very important question. Have they ever been involved with occult practices? Ouija boards or things like that. Because man is made in the image of God. Isn't that right? And when you look through your Bible, there are instances of self-harm in the Bible. Can you think of any? You can think of Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you think of the demoniac of Gadara? There are many instances in the Bible where self-harm is satanically inspired to deface the human image of God. Not that God is a human body, but you know what I mean. We're made in the image of God, and by damaging our body, we're defacing the image of God. So often you'll find people who self-harm have had some contact in the past with occult practices. I would say to somebody, if they see evidence of self-harm, I would never say, have you hurt yourself? I would just say, oh, how did that happen? And they may make an excuse, or they may tell you they've done it themselves. The essence is tenderness, Mm -hmm. compassion, and not any any judgmental attitude Mm -hmm. at all. You need to be very, very careful with people like that. Mm -hmm. I've known people who've indulged in self-harm for other reasons, to attract attention, to cry for help, to get pleasure, who've actually taken it too far. And in the end, they've... Mm -hmm killed themselves by accident because of self-harm. So you need to be very tender and very compassionate with that. Let's move on. Should a Christian be involved in politics? What if it directly affects our life? Should a Christian be involved in politics? (laughs) Well, this is beyond the scope of this conference. (laughs) I mean, there's different different views on this matter, right? Different Christians have, have different opinions. I'll just give you my take. I mean, I know the, the standard uh, take in Brethren Assemblies, traditional Brethren Assemblies, is our politics is in heaven, uh, and, uh, and that's true. Um, we are certainly called to pray for the authorities, and so we should be doing that, and it's infrequently, in my experience, infrequently done. What I would say, so I'm an evangelist, there's different levels of uh, involvement in politics, whether it's uh, you know voting or whether it's campaigning or whether it's running. I do think we need to contribute in society. You know, I think it's a valid criticism. Uh, you know, we were at a my wife was at a funeral of Mrs. Elliot um, just a few weeks ago in Toronto, and uh, a work got started there, and they were preaching in the open air, and somebody came along and said, "What do you guys do beyond preaching?" And she was very wise. She said, uh, what would you like us to do? She didn't get defensive. And they said, we'd like to learn how to sew. And she says, we'll start a sewing class. (laughs) 
And at seven years old, she started this sewing class. So she turned an assault of experience to benefit the community. I do think we need to be involved in our society. Uh, and I mean, that's just the whole principle of the incarnation in the life of Jesus. Um, but I would also say I'm an evangelist, and we are responsible to win as many people as we can. And I have a little bit of nervousness. I'm not a, in my own opinion, I'm not an anti-vote person uh, necessarily, although I don't vote myself. But I'm a little bit worried about the polarization in our politics. So whatever your politics, there's, there's, there's liberal Christians, there's progressive Christians, there's NDP Christians. I know it's hard to believe, but uh, but there is. And whatever brand you are, you are responsible as a Christian to reach people of the other brands. The call of the gospel doesn't just go out into all the world of people who are of a similar political ideology to you. (laughs) So just be careful if your commitment to politics is so strong that you alienate people that you are called by God to reach with the gospel. That's a theological issue. If you go down that path, you're going too far, in my opinion. So those are just be some of my thoughts. I know that's not a clear answer, but Let me give a Brit's view on the matter. I personally know good, godly Christians who are involved in politics in the UK at a very high level who work tirelessly to influence society and they do it with a single motive for the glory of God. And I know these people personally. Would I do that? My conscience would not allow me to do that for a variety of reasons, and I could explain them to you afterwards. But I will not engage, and we should not engage, in criticism of those who feel that God has given them opportunity to live for his glory in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Our time would be better spent in other ways than throwing stones at people who don't see it the same way as we do. That's all I would say in that issue. I'd like to hand out hats at Bible conferences that say, make assemblies great again. <laughs> okay, we're going, to t- we're going to take ten more minutes, so we're going to zip through. We're going to have to be selective. It's an overseer's job to shepherd. Who shepherds the shepherds? I think the other shepherds shepherd the shepherds. I think that's simple. That's why plurality is so important. I think when one shepherd struggles, the other shepherds help them. And I think that's the glory of plurality of, of elders. Oh, you're, a, you're an expert in this. No, I'm not, but I have a small hobby horse behind it. Does that qualify me? Hobby horse. It, is, I've asked this question myself, and the conclusion that I've had to come to is that as an elder, I have not nurtured relationships with other godly Christian men. And so elders need to have close friendships. Yeah where they can talk about the struggles that they're going through and the impact that it has on them. Um, because, yeah, there is no higher order of shepherds other than the chief shepherd. So definitely Christ, but also good man-to-man. But we talk as, about shepherds as though they're ten a penny. Mm. Good shepherds are very rare. I have to say that to yeah. you. I was at a conference recently and the brother who was preaching before me was talking about eldership and he was really good until he got to the point where he decided that he was going to fire at one-man ministry in other uh, places 
and he called them the pastor. He had to go at the places that only have the pastor and how that we have plurality of eldership and it's important to have plurality of eldership. And that was right. We should have plurality of eldership. But I thought, in my 40 years in assemblies, I can hardly think of a handful of men that I would have called real pastors. So how can we have five men in every assembly if we've only known five men our whole life? If you've got one good shepherd in your assembly, you thank God for that. You really do because they're very rare, very rare. Let's press on. Um, When we're physically sick, we seek help right away. Why do you think spiritually sick people take so long to seek seek help? How can we speed up the process? Um, making ourselves approachable uh, for those that are interested in helping is one way. Uh, speaking about issues as, I mean, the fact that Jim talked about spiritual casualties signals to me that I can talk to Jim about this issue. So when we in our assemblies talk about struggles on the platform and we address them in ministry and how the Lord has helped us, then we send the signal to the people in our assemblies that they're safe to talk to us about that. So that's, those are just a couple ideas. There's many more. So this is what Caleb's saying is vulnerability in all relationships, whether it's on the platform, whether it's interpersonally, be willing to engage in appropriate vulnerability to share your story. And what that means is, is when somebody is vulnerable with you, be safe, you know, be, be respectful. This is just under the umbrella of Christian love. Right, uh, it's all through the scriptures. We need to be a community of people that are that are loving. If somebody tells us their difficulty, their struggle, their pain, we love them by honoring their confidence and by by praying for them and asking how we can help them. We show respect to other people who have who have been vulnerable enough to share with us. Yeah, and I think we need to encourage folks to understand that one of the most important elements of being a Christian is being real. You've got to be real. We've been taught to cover up. We've been taught that our Christianity is achievement based. And if we're not achieving what we're expected to achieve, we just pretend we're achieving it. We put up a front and we put on our clothes and we carry the right Bible and we say the right words. And underneath we are not what we appear on the surface. And so we don't encourage people to be honest and real and transparent. That's why it's good to talk about weakness. I don't mean we glory in our weakness. I don't mean that. And we're always saying, oh, poor me, I'm terrible, look at that. I don't mean that. But we've got to understand that we all are vulnerable and we're all failing and we all need help. Mm -hmm. And I need help. And if you find somebody that's real, you can be sure that they won't look down their nose at you when you tell them that you're struggling as well. So I would encourage reality and transparency and honesty. Caleb, what would you say was the biggest problem with cell phones, even though it's a tool for communication and it became good? The the person we can't communicate with is God. I think pretty much you answered that in the... Okay, yeah. I, don't, I haven't really thought about what the biggest problem is. I'll be talking more about the impact of them on family, on young people, especially tomorrow. But I do, if just off the top of my head, which there's not much up there, is I'd go with uh, human connection. They're supposed to make us way more connected. They make us way less connected. And so anything we can do to restore natural human connection, I would, um, would be healthy. So how do you know when using your cell phone is becoming a problem? Uh, when you... 
when you're using it and you don't need to. Uh, so a recent example from my life, I, I noticed actually preparing messages for this conference that I was picking up my phone and I was going to the, the, uh, uh, the second screen in Instagram, I forget what it's called, and just kind of looking at stuff on there. Nothing bad, but just wasting time, like 20 minutes trying to get going. And that's to me, that's a problem. Uh, when that's happening, and so that's when I start to do that. Uh, watch for isolation, for loneliness, and uh, just it's really the compulsive action of just grabbing it when you're not thinking instead of purposefully using it as a tool, which it is a great tool. Uh, I encourage you to watch that. I'm sorry, folks, we're going to have to not answer them all, but um, did you want to see some of that, Stephen? Because I'm, I want to talk about this. What is spiritual abuse? And then, in relation to abuse, how should the church address the topic of sexual abuse and the Me Too, Church Too movements? How can Christians or elders address sexual abuse with compassion? So let's talk for very briefly, because we've only a couple of minutes left, about spiritual abuse. Do you want to say something, Steve? So spiritual abuse is when you uh, use your uh, power to coerce, and usually it's done with, with roughness. So the, the solution is, with all abuse, is to speak the truth. So it needs to, it needs to be gently called out. And I mean, there's safe ways to do that. But that's spiritual abuse needs to be called out. Sexual abuse, it just, we need to talk about this. That this is real. There's about, you know, 20, uh, 20% of people who have experienced this. So in a crowd of this size, you know what, 60, 70 people, that means what? 10 to 15 people have experienced this. And so we need to start talking about this. This is not something out there. This is something we have it, right? And, and so, People will never share their story until they feel safe regarding how it will be handled. And so I believe, I believe that the biggest burden is to create church fellowships where it's safe. That if people share their story, they won't be, you know, really? They won't be doubted. They won't be they won't be sort of thought, how could you, like there's, there won't be those, those unempathetic responses to the story. Uh, that there'll be responses that say, oh that sounds really hard. That's tough. I'm so sorry that that happened. Empathetic responses. We need to develop contexts that are kind to people who have these painful stories so that they can begin to share them. It's not fair to ask them to come out uh, in the open and share this. We need to have conversations about this, and we need to develop serious, uh, you know, sort of dealing with deficits in empathy and, and work on this so that people will be able to share share their stories. And you know what? There's there's huge potential for for the church to stand up and to say, yeah, this is a problem, and we're against this sort of thing, and we want to pr- provide a place of safety for people who've struggled with this. We have all the tools. We have the love of Christ. We have the grace of the Lord. I mean, we are ideally positioned, <laughs> ideally positioned to become a community of of believers where people with a lot of wounds can can feel safe to be loved and to be to be honest. So we're the ones that should be first in line to develop this kind of a community. 
spiritual, spiritual abuse is often the imposition of a personal preference under the cloak of a spiritual principle. So we want it this way. It's always been this way. And if you don't want it this way, you're going to cause trouble by creating disunity. So I'm the one that wants unity, and you're the one that wants disunity. So that personal preference then throws itself around itself, a cloak of pseudo-spirituality, the high concept of unity, when actually all it's doing is saying, my way, not your way. So spiritual abuse is very often somebody imposing on others their personal preference and then deceiving people by cloaking it in spiritual language or spiritual abuse. Hymn books, you know, we're having this hymn book and if you don't want that hymn book, you want another hymn book, you're the one that's causing trouble. I'm not the one that's causing trouble. You're the one that's causing trouble because you want the change. Diotrophies. It's manipulation. Just manipulation is all that is. Sheer manipulation, that's all it is. And do you know what happens, folks? Good people can only take so much abuse. And eventually, good people think, do you know what? I am not taking this anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm gone. Mm -hmm. And they go to a place where maybe the principles that they believe are not practiced in the way they want them to be practiced, but they're handled with kindness, gentleness, and Christian compassion. And good people say, I am not having this anymore. And they go. And do you know what happens? Good people leave Mm -hmm. and the bad people stay. Mm -hmm. And instead of it getting better, it gets worse. Mm -hmm. And instead of us growing, we dwindle. Mm -hmm. I think it's been one of our biggest... don't, Don't talk about Canada, I talk about the UK. It's been one of our biggest problems for at least two generations. Spiritual abuse under the, the guise of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it all the worse. It's cloaked in false spirituality. I think we need to call it a day at that. There's a few more questions here that are really good, and they've not been answered, not because they weren't good, but just because we didn't have time.